For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Uh, we're going to have John Lennox get up here. John Lennox is a mathematics professor at Oxford University in England. You've probably heard of some of his books, Seven Days That Divide the World, or God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God, God and Stephen Hawking, Whose Design Is It Anyway, or Gunning for God. There's quite a few books that he's written, but my favorite, because I come out of a math background, is his book, The Theory of Infinite Soluble Groups. It's an awesome read. I highly recommend you get out there and check it out. Now, along with, um, along with the whole math thing, John is also obviously a gifted apologist. He's also done some work with bioethics. Uh, John's pe- probably best known for his public debates with the new atheists like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. You should check out those debates on YouTube. They're really worth watching. What drew us to John is he's obviously brilliant but also very engaging and warm and approachable, kind of guy that you'd have a hard time not liking after a debate. So we're very, I can't tell you how fortunate we are to have him here all the way from Oxford and how grateful we are to have you, John. So come on up. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. That was pathetic. <laughs> Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Much better. <clears throat> I've been asked to speak to you on the topic, Has Science Buried God? To every lecturer, there belongs a biography. And that is important for you to understand where I'm coming from and why I'm engaged in this debate. I come from Ireland, Northern Ireland, which hasn't always the best reputation for its Christian witness in terms of sectarian violence. But I had remarkable parents who were Christian without being sectarian, and they allowed me to think and encouraged me to think and consider worldviews other than my own. I arrived in Cambridge in 1962 just to catch the last lectures of C.S. Lewis in the English faculty. And in my first week, a student said to me, do you believe in God? And he said, oh, sorry, I shouldn't have asked you that. You're Irish. (laughs) All you Irish believe in God and you fight about it. I'd heard it before, but somehow it was of interest to me because now I had the opportunity that I didn't have so much in Ireland of meeting people who did not share my worldview. Atheists, agnostics, people of other religions and so on. So I decided on that day that I would befriend them and I've been doing it ever since. And little did I know that the preparation over those years was a preparation for stepping into the arena with Richard Dawkins, Hitchens, Peter Singer, Mike Shermer, and so on. But one of the elements in my education was that I studied in Germany, got the language, and spent 25 years traveling very frequently to Eastern Europe because I was interested in the systematic effect of atheism in the educational system. When the wall fell, I started to go to Russia because for many years 
I'd been a translator of mathematical Russian, and that gave me some way of getting in to the Russian scene. And so I spent the last 20 years or so with very frequent contact with the Russian Academy of Sciences, debating these issues with people that have been steeped in atheistic thinking for the last 80 years or so. And all of that is some little sort of preparation. When we raise the question of science buried God, of course that refers to a popular impression that's entirely false. And that is that there is a battle, an essential battle between science on the one side and belief in God at the other. That is a very superficial analysis, as you can see at once by simply considering the following. Let's take two world-famous physicists. One is Stephen Hawking, the physicist in the wheelchair. He probably will win the Nobel Prize one day if his Hawking radiation is confirmed by a physical experiment. He is an atheist. William Phillips is an American Nobel Prize winner for physics, and he is a Christian. Now that shows you immediately that the war cannot be between science and religion because you have top scientists whose qualifications are unquestionable in both camps. So where is the battle? The battle is much deeper. It is a worldview conflict. It is a battle between, on the one hand, the worldview of materialism or naturalism. They're not quite the same, but it'll do for today. And the world of theism. And it goes back a very long way back to ancient Greece in one sense, where the hard thinking started about the nature of ultimate reality. And you had the brilliant thinkers like Democritus and Leucippus who came up with the atomic theory, the idea of something that was atomos, it couldn't be cut. And they believed that ultimate reality was two things, atoms and the void, empty space. And as the atoms cascaded through empty space, they produced a universe, they produced life and consciousness and so on. They are the materialists. But at the same time, there were people like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle who said no. Ultimate reality is not just mass energy as we would put it today. There is transcendence, there are the gods or there is God. And so barreling up through the centuries into the Western Academy, we have those two diametrically opposed worldviews. There are scientists on both sides of them. So the real question that we should face this morning is this. Which way does science point? Does it point, as Richard Dawkins claims, to atheism, or does it point towards God? Now, we ought to realize something very important. Firstly, that science has enormous cultural authority today. And rightly so, because science has delivered all those gadgets that you're playing with at the moment and not listening to me. <laughs> you can tweet afterwards. You do not have to let the world know what you think of this. My experience as an educator is it's far better you use your minds now on what I'm saying and tweet, Twitter, flit or fleet or whatever it is afterwards. <laughs> okay. And blogging can wait. 
The crucial thing, though, to realize, and I say this as a passionate scientist, is that science is not the only way to truth. Its cultural authority is such that many people have come to believe that. It is the philosophy of scientism. And it is logically incoherent. Because the statement, science is the only way to truth, is not a statement of science. So if it's true, it's false. It's too early in the morning for logic, obviously. <laughs> but I leave you with that. It's far better with Sir Peter Medawar, the Nobel Prize winning scientist, to say this. It's so easy to see that science is limited. It cannot answer the simple questions of a child. Where do I come from? What's the meaning of life? Where am I going to? And indeed, even more so, if science were the only way to truth, you'd have to close half the faculties in your universities. History isn't science, neither is economics, literature, linguistics, and so on and so forth. It is a nonsense, but it is a subtle nonsense. Because the pressure is on to get you to think that science is the only way to truth. And parallel to that, to get you to think that science is coextensive with rationality. That is seriously false. And I'm saying that one reason is that I want to now adduce evidence from various areas. And the first is not science as such, but the history of science. And what we're going to look at this morning, very rapidly, is three major areas which I think show us that science points towards God. One is the history of science, two is the nature and philosophy of science, and three is the results of science. History is enormously important because, of course, history determines our identity. And the history of science is remarkably clear about one signal striking fact, and that is this. Modern science arose in the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe, and it arose in a thoroughly Christian culture. And philosophers and historians of science have constantly asked the question, is there a relationship between the two? Now, there's masses written on this, but the general agreed opinion with some nuances is well put by C.S. Lewis, where he said this, men became scientific because they expected law in nature. And they expected law in nature because they believed in a law giver. That is enormously important and very easily forgotten. I remember the first time I lectured on that in Siberia in 1990. And when I quoted this, that Newton and Kepler and Galileo, Clark Maxwell, Babbage, and a whole list of prominent scientists were believers. They got angry. I could see them getting angry. And I don't like professors getting angry. I don't like anybody getting angry. So I stopped, and I said to the professor in the front row, why are you mad? And he stood up. He said, I'm mad, because why didn't anybody ever tell us this before? I said, can't you guess? He said, nobody has ever told us that any of these people believed in God. This is the first time in my life I've ever heard it. But many people in 21st century America have never heard it. They don't realize the close, very close connection between belief in God and the impetus to do science. A brilliant Nobel Prize winner, Melvin Calvin, in biochemistry said, as he looks around for the origin 
of the scientific impulse. He says, I find it in an idea first discovered by the Hebrews. The idea that there's one creator instead of a whole lot of minor deities who constructed a world intelligently according to laws that he himself designed. That's a remarkable statement. And you see, ladies and gentlemen, that means that far from me being embarrassed of being a scientist and a Christian, it's the exact opposite. Christianity arguably gave me my subject. Why should I be embarrassed about it? But of course, revisionist history is all over the place. And therefore, we need to be reminded about history. But that leads to the first major problem. If it is as I say, why then the enormous pressure ratcheted up to the nth degree recently by Professor Stephen Hawking of Cambridge that we must choose between science and God? That's the pressure. And I meet many young people who are faced with this and very perplexed. They're told if you want to remain intellectually credible, you've got to choose science and reject God because the two are mutually incompatible. Those arguments are very powerful. And as I say that to you, my mind goes back to when I was 19 at Cambridge and a Nobel Prize winner invited me up to his room and sat me down said, Lennox, do you want to make a career in science? I said, yes, sir. Well, he said, give up these infantile notions of God. They will cripple you intellectually and exclude you permanently from any chance of being a distinguished scientist. That was pressure. I then asked him what he had to offer me better than what I'd got. And he came out with some Bergsonian evolutionism that most of you have never heard of. I said, sir, if that's all you've got, I'll stick with what I've got. Thank you very much. But you see, that is the force and the title of Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. That's what gets in under the skin of so many people, even Christians, and causes them to wobble and worry. God is a delusion, like Santa Claus and the Truth Fairy. Well, no, he isn't. Have you ever met an adult that came to believe in Santa Claus? (laughs) I remember that I did believe in Santa Claus one time. But I sussed it out fairly rapidly, and then I decided to keep quiet because it had financial benefits. (laughs) Now, we need to face this, of course, because it's the age-old Freudian explanation that God is a projection of our desire for a father figure in the sky and all the rest of it. And there's a brilliant book by a man called Manfred Lutz, Its title is Eine kleine Geschichte des Größten, which is German for a brief history of the great one, but it's not in English yet, which is why I've quoted it in German. And Manfred Lutz is a brilliant, best-selling author, psychiatrist. And he says, yes, he said, if there is no God, then Freud will give you a brilliant explanation why religion is an escapism, if there is no God. Of course, if there is a God, then Freud will give you an equally brilliant explanation why atheism is an escapism. That is very important. And as a principle, it's important. When you meet an argument from atheists, try reversing it and applying it to them. Because this whole business that religion is escapism, projection of the father figure in the sky, you can turn it right upside down and say that atheism exactly is the same thing. And Manfred Lutz's conclusion is this. 
If there is no God, Freud gives you a great explanation that religion is escapism. If there is a God, he gives a brilliant explanation why atheism is an escapist philosophy. But what he cannot do is decide for you whether there is a God or isn't. And you'll have to decide that on other grounds. The psychological argument gets you nowhere. A little illustration of it is that Stephen Hawking was interviewed by one of our national newspapers not long ago. And he said, religion is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. And I was asked to comment, and I said, if you want a one-liner, here it is. Atheism is a fairy story for people afraid of the light. <laughs> of course, you decide nothing by one-line quips. But the point is, when those one-line quips come from a famous scientist, people say, isn't that marvelous? <laughs> it's very childish, actually. Now, the next thing is, and we're dealing with this question because it's the most important one this morning. Why the pressure to choose between God and science? First, there's the Freudian argument, which we've got rid of. But next, there are deeper questions. And I used to think that the main problem was that these people didn't understand science. I still think that's a main problem. We'll come to it in a minute. But I suddenly realized that the first problem is they don't understand God. Now, what I mean by that is this, that Hawking says, well, the Greeks used to believe in their gods, and science could only begin when they got rid of the gods. If you believe that the moon and the sun are gods, you'll not do any physics of the sun or moon. You'd be frightened to. You might upset the god. That kind of attitude. And so we get rid of the gods, and we then can do science. So Getting rid of the gods and doing science is one and the same thing, essentially. You can't do one without the other. And of course, there are reasons for that. Their gods are deifications of the fundamental forces of nature. Get rid of the gods and you can study the forces of nature. Now, here's where there's a major point to be made. Because the atheists these days, I was amazed to meet it recently. I did the God debate at Oxford where we all dress up in dinner suits, and we have a parliamentary debate in the most famous debating chamber in the world, in the Oxford Union. And they had Michael Shermer sent over from here, and uh, there were six of us anyway. And I was amazed to hear the atheists come out with this argument. They say to me, well, you are an atheist with respect to Aphrodite. You're an atheist with respect to Baal. You're an atheist with respect to Zeus and Wotan and all the rest of them. And they go on and on and on through a great big dictionary of, a, of gods, you see. And of course, that's true. I am, ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> an absolutely determined Awotanist. And I'm also an Azusist. And on top of that, I'm an Abalist, just to, you know. And they say with a great smile, and we just go one god more. And we add Yahweh, Jehovah, God of the Bible, the Lord God to the list. That's all we do. But they're not thinking, ladies and gentlemen. Because there is a vast difference between the gods of the Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Greeks, and Romans, and the God of the Bible. And the difference is this. He created the universe. They descended from it. Now, what do I mean by that? 
If you look and analyze the gods of the ancients, they all evolve from the primeval matter of the universe. They are material gods. The God of the Bible created the matter of the universe. That puts him in an absolutely different category. And this business, we just go one God more is nonsense, as I pointed out to Richard Dawkins. And I said to him, Richard, I noticed you haven't written a 400-page book on our Wotanism, but you have written a 400-page book on our theism. Why is that? Well, it's obvious why it is. Because there's more evidence for the existence of God, infinitely more, and he's in a, in a different category than the gods of the ancient um, <coughs> he, uh, the gods of the ancient Babylonians, Egyptians, and so on. Now, what I'm pointing at now, we can change the language and update it quite a lot. Because you see, what I discovered was when these people meet me and discover I believe in God, they think that I mean by God, a God of the gaps. That is, to put it crudely, I can't explain it, therefore God did it. Now, of course, that's exactly how the Greek gods got banished. Because they were like that. The god of thunder disappeared when you do a bit of atmospheric physics. And you see, the way these new atheists are defining God is such that you're forced to the choice between God and science. You see that? It proceeds from the definition of God. Now, it takes a bit of thinking to get that. And it's problematic because some Christians are God of the gaps people. Here's a bit of biology we can't explain, therefore God did it, and their whole faith depends on that. Well, that's not really adequate, is it? You see, the God of the Bible is not a God of the bits we can't explain. He's the God of the whole show. The bits we can explain and the bits we can't explain. Now, that is enormously important. So, we got to make sure we're not talking at cross-purposes. Their idea of God and the biblical idea of God. We've got to go up front by saying clearly that our God is not a God of the gaps like you conceive we believe in. So your arguments fall. And of course you can substantiate that. Uh, one of the best ways is to think of Isaac Newton. When he discovered his law of gravitation, he didn't say, wonderful, I know how it works, I don't need God. No, he didn't. What he did do was write the most brilliant book in the history of science called the Principia Mathematica. And he expressed the hope at the start of it that it would convince thinking people that there was a deity. In other words, the more he understood of science, the more he believed in God. Two seconds thought will show you that that's the way it works. Show me a Rembrandt painting. Well, I can see it's beautiful. But if you studied art, you'll see more in it than me. Show me a Rolls-Royce engine, and I think it's wonderfully quiet, but you've studied engineering, you can see far more in it than me, can't you? In other words, the more you understand of how difficult it is, the more you admire the genius of the person that designed it, not the less. So the more I understand of science, and I understand little, but enough to see the sheer wonder of the genius of the God that invented it. And that's the way it ought to be. So let's not 
unconsciously transmit the idea that our God is a tiny vanishing deity who will disappear the moment science makes the slightest advance forwards. So that is a very important notion. Now, the next thing that creates that same problem, choosing between science and God, is a failure to understand on the scientific side what we mean by explanation. What do we mean by explanation? Science explains. What does that mean? Well, Newton got a law of gravitation. That tells us what gravity is. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. I wasn't taught that at school, you know. I made the mistake that so many people make that they think that a scientific law tells you what the thing it describes is. Newton had no idea what gravity was. No one knows what gravity is even today. You see, Newton's law of gravitation tells you how to do brilliant mathematical calculations that are enough without Einstein's qualifications to land somebody in the moon. It's brilliant stuff. I love teaching it to people. But it doesn't tell you what gravity is. Wittgenstein, the famous philosopher, once said, the greatest deception of modernism is the idea that the laws of nature are explanations of the phenomena of nature. They are not. They are simply descriptions. Now that is immensely important. I believe in science. It's wonderful stuff. But when people say, I've got a law, it explains everything. No, it doesn't. It never does. And we've got to keep the nature of scientific explanation in its place. That's point number one. But point number two is this. God is an explanation. But he's not the same kind of explanation as science is. You see, Newton kept believing in God because he didn't make a mistake that I find schoolchildren follow very easily. God is an agent who designed and sustains the universe. Science tells us bits about how it works and so on. But there is a profound difference between an explanation in terms of science, mechanism and, a a mechanism and law, if you like, and an explanation in terms of agency on the other side. Let me put it to you very simply, because I often do this with school kids. I say to them, just imagine we got a Ford motor car engine, say of a Ford Galaxy sitting here. And I say, I want you to choose between two explanations of this. The one is mechanical engineering, science, the laws of physics. That's the one explanation. The other over here is Henry Ford. Choose. And the kids all start to laugh. But they say, but sir, you can't choose. You have to have both. Why can't Dawkins see that? <laughs> can you see that? Because if you can see that, you've got to the heart of one of the biggest problems that's tying people up in intellectual knots. And that is to see that Henry Ford is a different kind of explanation than the explanation in terms of um, internal, the law of internal combustion mechanical engineering. And what is more, Henry Ford doesn't compete with those two explanations at all. That is an absurdity. And it's exactly the same 
If you think about God in the universe, God isn't competing with scientific explanations. God is the explanation why science explains. He's the ground of all explanation. Lawrence Krauss, of great fame increasingly these days because of his book, A Universe from Nothing, he wrote an article, and I'm afraid I uh, was so irritated by it, I wrote another article reply. <laughs> and he said, now that we've got the Higgs boson, arguably the Higgs boson is more important than God. You all know what the Higgs boson is. No, you don't. We don't really know what the Higgs boson is. But the particle that CERN has discovered. The Higgs boson is arguably more important than God. So I wrote an article for our leading newspaper, The Times, that said something like this. I said, um, the Higgs boson is arguably more important than God if you're explaining how particle physics works. Of course. Just like internal combustion is more important than Henry Ford if you're explaining how the engine works. But if you're explaining how it comes to be that there is a universe in which there are Higgs bosons, God is very much more important than Higgs boson. So I concluded the article slightly tongue-in-cheek, and I said, what are we going to say about the Higgs boson? Well, Higgs predicted it, CERN discovered it, and God invented it. <laughs> we celebrate the first two, what about the third? And that's the problem. So let's get this message. You're probably surprised that you've understood everything so far. <laughs> C.S. Lewis taught me that the main thing to go for is, I really want to be understood, ladies and gentlemen. Because I think that the main arguments in this sphere can be understood by virtually everybody. And that opens the debate up to all of us instead of closing it down to just a few very highly educated individuals. You can get into a very interesting discussion about the point that I have just made to you. Now, the brakes will be put on at this point by... Well, it does amaze me, really. I used to get it in Russia a lot. Who created the Creator? Do you know this argument? Because people will say, look, if you postulate God as a Creator for everything, let's forget all we've said so far. But think about it. If you're going to postulate God as a Creator for the universe, then logically, you'll have to say, well, who created God? who created the Creator, that created the Creator, that created the Creator, that created... And it goes back forever. Reductio ad absurdum, forget it, let's go back to playing football. <laughs> but that's nonsense, ladies and gentlemen. Logical analysis is wonderful stuff, you know. When you get statements like that, analyze their logic. So let's put our safety belts on again and do a bit more logical analysis. The question, who created the Creator? Let's think about it. So let's abstract it. Who created X? What does that statement mean, that question mean? And more importantly, what does it assume? It, of course, assumes that X was created. If you ask who created X, then you're assuming X was created. So if you ask who created God, you're assuming God was created, but what if he wasn't? Your question's irrelevant. Put it another way. If Richard Bilkin's book had been called The Created God's Delusion, I don't think it would have been a bestseller. 
because we don't need him to tell us that created gods are in delusion. We usually call them idols. Have you got it? It's what philosophers call a complex question. It closes down the real issue. Who created God is telling you that you're responding to a question that assumes God has created and is expecting you to reply on the same assumption. But of course, if he isn't, it's irrelevant. And the central claim of the Bible is that God is not created. He is eternal. He never came to exist. Whereas the universe did come to exist. That's the profound difference between the universe and God. Ah, but there's a sting in this, you see. You can turn it upside down, like I did with the other question. And so I said to Richard Dawkins when he put this to me, you think it's a valid question, which of course it is for created things. So I said, Richard, you believe the universe created you. So please tell me, who created your creator? Still waiting for an answer to that. See, these things are very important. They sound so clever, but they're not actually very clever. Apply a little bit of logical analysis, and they soon fall to pieces. So, <clears throat> uh, we can leave that safely, and I'm amazed. I had it from Krauss. I had it from Peter Singer. I had it from Christopher Hitchens, and I've had it from many, many other people. It is just very foolish, logically, and that's the best you can say about it. Now, I want to come and pick up something else that I mentioned en passant, but it is enormously important in this. I said the science arose because people like Galileo and Kepler and so on believed in a lawgiver. You notice the word believed. That is, they had faith in a lawgiver. Scientists are men and women of faith, ladies and gentlemen. And it's not only that they had faith in a lawgiver. That led them to believe that the universe was worth studying because it would be mathematically intelligible. If there was an intelligent lawgiver, the universe would be at least in part understandable to us. Yes? All scientists believe that today. That is their basic faith. Scientists have faith, sure. Ah, but they won't admit it, because now comes the next big difficulty. And you will see that I'm putting these things up as false alternatives. Science or religion. God or science. Here's the next one. Faith or reason. Totally false alternatives. I'm going to do this very rapidly because I've written on it in great wadges of stuff in various books because it's crucially important to realize that the new atheists have redefined the concept of faith. For them, faith is a religious term and it means believing where there is no evidence. That's blind faith. The ordinary meaning of the word faith, which we all know, is a response, a commitment based on evidence. And of every commitment, we can ask, what is the evidence you have for making that commitment? And you'll find out all about evidence-based faith if you go to a bank and ask for a loan. Because they will want you to provide evidence that you're trustworthy, won't they? Now, let's get it utterly clear, ladies and gentlemen. 
The Christian faith is evidence-based. Faith isn't something that just happens to you. Faith is a deliberate commitment based on evidence. John's Gospel makes that massively clear, as do the other writings. Many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. In other words, here's the evidence on which faith can be based. Christianity is evidence-based. So, the new atheists have got so many people to believe, and believe you me, this is a problematic one. I have a running debate with many of my atheist colleagues in Oxford. They cannot see that faith is anything but blind, and that blinds them completely to the fact that faith is essential in science. You see, you can't do science without believing, A, that there's a universe out there, B, that it's ordered, C, that you think science is worth doing. You have to believe all of those things. But there's something else you have to believe. And now the real interest starts for me. And that is you have to believe that the human mind is sufficiently trustworthy to do the science. You have to believe that before you start. But why should I believe that? That's the question. Why should I believe that? And that is a focus of a very big debate in the current climate. You see, it all goes back to what is called Darwin's doubt. It's rather ironical, this, that Darwin raised this. Here it comes, in the Origin of Species. No, no, in a letter he wrote. But then with me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of the lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? Have you got that idea? If it is true that the human mind is the end product of a mindless, unguided, naturalistic process, why would you trust it? Now, Lewis, of course, saw this, which is why scientists don't like him. He saw this very clearly. Unless human reasoning is valid, he wrote, no science can be true. It follows that no account of the universe can be true unless that account leaves it possible for our thinking to be a real insight. A theory which explained everything else in the whole universe, but which made it impossible to believe that our thinking was valid, would be utterly out of court. For that theory would itself have been reached by thinking. And if thinking is not valid, that theory would of course be itself demolished. It would have destroyed its own credentials. It would be an argument that proved that no argument was sound, a proof that there are no such things as proof, which is nonsense. And Lewis quotes uh, the chemist J.B.S. Haldane, who pointed out long ago that if the thoughts in my mind are just the motions of atoms in my brain, a mechanism that has arisen by mindless, unguided processes, why should I believe anything? This brain tells me, including the fact that it is made of atoms. In other words, my chief objection, ladies and gentlemen, to atheism is not that it doesn't believe in God. That's, of course, it does. 
but that it undermines the very things we need to do science. It is anti-science. That is a very weighty point, and at the moment, it is the focus of some very, very bright people, including your own Professor Thomas Nagel of New York. He's just written an astonishing book, which is called Mind and Cosmos, but it's the subtitle that has unleashed a viral spate of sheer hostility of extreme magnitude. The subtitle of his book is why the neo-Darwinian view of the universe is almost certainly false. Now, the point is, Nagel is one of your leading philosophers, but he's also an atheist. It isn't just, he says, that I don't believe in God and actually hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there's no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. But his mind and his logic are leading them to this. That scientists have missed something. And what they've missed is this. They studied the universe with their minds without studying their minds and seeing how that fits in with their picture of the universe. And he argues it doesn't. That's very powerful stuff. And if you want to see scientists calling each other heretics, just Google Thomas Nagel. It's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> Let me give you a couple of quotes by him. This is an atheist talking. Consciousness is the most conspicuous obstacle to a comprehensive naturalism that relies only on the resources of physical science. If we take this problem seriously and follow out its implications, it threatens to unravel the entire naturalistic world picture. Or again, evolutionary naturalism implies that we shouldn't take any of our convictions seriously, including the scientific world picture, on which evolutionary naturalism itself depends. Now, do you see what this argument is doing? It's following to its logical conclusions the core beliefs of many natural scientists. And it's beginning to show us that atheism does not only shoot itself in the foot, it shoots itself in the brain. Alvin Plantinga is one of the most distinguished philosophers in the world, secular or Christian. He is Christian. And he has waded into this brilliantly. He's written a book called Where the Problem Really Lies. And in it he says this, If Dawkins is right that we are the product of mindless, unguided natural processes, then he has given us strong reason to doubt the reliability of human cognitive faculties and therefore inevitably to doubt the validity of any belief that they produce, including Dawkins' own science and his atheism. And here's the sentence that I find extremely powerful. Dawkins' biology and his belief in naturalism would therefore appear to be at war with each other in a conflict that has nothing at all to do with God. Do you get that? His biology, which is telling us that the mind is the end product of a mindless, unguided process, and his belief that naturalism is true, are in head-on collision. It's got nothing to do with God at all. So, we're at a very interesting state in this debate, where I think in this area we've got down to one 
of the most important things. And by the way, just contrast with that the biblical explanation of why science works. The famous Nobel Prize winner Eugen Wigner wrote a paper in 1961 that's much loved to mathematicians like myself. It's called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics. And Einstein saw the problem. He said the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. How is it that here's a mathematician and she's thinking in her head here and she comes up with some equations and they appear to fit the universe out there? How does that work? Einstein was clever enough to see there was a problem, so was Wigner. And he talked about the unreasonable, it's utterly unreasonable that we should expect it works. Yes, it is if you're an atheist, of course it is, utterly unreasonable, as I've just pointed out. But it's not utterly unreasonable if you're a biblical theist, is it? And so we go back in the circle where science began. Why did it begin? Because people were convinced there was a lawgiver behind the universe, a creator God. And therefore they felt that science was worth doing and could be done. You see, it fits brilliantly with the Christian worldview. It doesn't fit with the atheist worldview at all. So that little bit of history I talked to you at the beginning is not innocent. Because it opens up the real issues. It's the most fascinating thing to explore it a little bit further. So now it's story time. You like stories, don't you? I'm an Irishman. I love telling stories. <laughs> In fact, you've probably learned more from the illustrations I've given you than from the technical details, but that, that is just the way life is. So let's have a look at this atheistic picture of the world. What is it? Well, one of its characteristics is reductionism. It's reductionistic. That is, it seeks to explain the whole universe in terms of physics and chemistry, say. It's bottom-up explanation. It's a bit like the ancient Epicureans and uh, philosophers going back to Democritus and so on, who argued that there were the atoms in the void, as I said before. Now, if you are told that there are just the atoms in the void, and you're asked to write a two-page essay on the origin of humans and life, you will do it in the way they did it. Of course you will. You'll say, well, the um, atoms clung together, they formed galaxies, and those formed planets and stars, and they clung together in more and more complicated ways and formed life and all the rest of it. They got these theories long before Darwin, by the way, millennia before Darwin, because they deduced them from materialistic philosophy without any real knowledge of the natural world at all. Now, that's a subject in itself, and I've written about it in my book, God's Undertaker, if you want to pursue it a bit more. But let's go back to this situation. Reductionism. Is that true. Francis Crick, for instance, you, your thoughts, your hopes, your joys are nothing but the results of the motions of a collection of molecules. Really? That's reductionism. So, well, let me tell you my story. We have got a delightful college in Oxford and we have a candlelit dinner every Thursday night and the guests are distributed according to some higher hand uh, and we are told where we sit. So I found myself beside a very, very brilliant um, scientist. 
And as is customary in Oxford, he asked me not who I was, but what I did. And so I said, I'm a pure mathematician. Oh dear, he said, how awfully boring. <laughs> and he meant it. And I said, oh well, I know uh, abstract pure mathematics algebra is very complex and it's very boring, but I try to make up for that, you know. I'm interested in other things, many other things. In particular, I'm interested in the really big questions, like what he said. Well, I said, like the status of the universe. Is it created or not? Or the status of human life? Is it made in the image of God or not? Oh dear, he said, it's far worse than I thought. <laughs> he said, listen, I'm an atheist. I'm a reductionist, we've nothing to talk about, and we're going to have a very miserable evening. Well, that's a good start for a dinner party. <laughs> so I said to him, I said, nonsense, I said, you're a reductionist. Well, I'm fascinated by reductionism. I know at least three kinds, which kind are you? Well, that was a bit difficult, so I helped him out. And uh, <laughs> I said, look, I said, you and I, I said, I'm a mathematician, and you're a, a natural scientist, hands-on man. I said, but we both do the same thing. When we've got a big problem, we split it up into little problems, we study the little problems, and we hope to get insight in the big problems. Yes, he said, that's what I do. Well, I said, you're a methodological reductionist. All of us are, even in our families we are, by the way. Split up big problems, solve the little ones, and hope you get the solution to the big one. But I said, I guess you're an ontological reductionist. Ontos, the Greek word for being. I said, you really believe that everything can be reduced to physics and chemistry? He said, that's it, really. He said, that's, that's my bottom line. Oh, I said, well, why don't we do an experiment? He said, what? Here at the dinner table? I said, yeah, sure, this is Oxford. <laughs> so I picked up the menu. And it wasn't very imaginative. It wasn't even in French. It said roast chicken. <clears throat> so he said, what's the problem? Well, I said, you're a reductionist. Yeah, he said, well, I said, have a look at this. R-O-A-S-T. said, what's funny about that? I said, nothing at all. Those are marks on paper. But they carry meaning for both of us. Don't they? He said, yes. That is, they've got a semiotic dimension from the Greek semion, a sign, used in John's Gospel for the signs that Jesus did. Yes, he said, that's right. Right, he said, you're a reductionist. Here's my... Challenge to you. Explain to me the semiotics of ROAST in terms of the physics and chemistry of the paper and ink. And there was a deathly silence. And his wife was beside him. And she nudged him, and rather too loudly she said, Get out of that if you can. <laughs> but he didn't try. He said something that staggered me in its honesty. He said, you know, John, he was getting friendly now. Um, he said, you know, for 40 years I've gone into my laboratory thinking that that could be done. And he said, I see now it just can't. And I was so staggered. I said, half a minute. Physics and chemistry have only been going about 500 years. He said, it doesn't matter. You cannot explain the semiotics of those letters without an intelligence. And it's at that point, I didn't do it with him, but that I drop a little bomb, usually. I say, ha ha. R-O-A-S-T, five letters. It's a word. And you instantly, 
perceive that an intelligence is involved, even though there may be a lot of automatic machines involved in the production of that menu. Yes. Robotic machines, computer-driven, all the rest of it. But you know an intelligence was involved in conceiving it. Now I said, you look down a magic microscope, you'll see why it's magic in a moment, and you see a double helix unfolding. And it's spitting off letters, C-G-A-A-T-G-C-A-A-T-G-C-C-T-A-A-G-T. And you say, what's that? Oh, that's the human genome, but what are those letters? They're codons. Oh, are they? They code for something. Yes, the order of those letters codes for the order of the amino acids, which builds the proteins. But look, it seems to go on forever. How many of those codons are there? 3.5 times 10 to the 9. 3.5 billion. Oh, tell me, what's the origin of that? Chance and necessity. What? It's the longest word we've ever discovered, ladies and gentlemen. R-O-A-S-T is enough to tell you about intelligence. Why aren't 3.5 billion letters in exactly the right order enough to tell you that there is a word? Isn't it ironical that in the 10 trillion cells or 100 trillion that comprise our body and every one of them, there's this vast genetic code, the longest word that's ever been discovered. And now you come back to these worldviews. One of them starts in the beginning was mass energy, the particles, matter and the void, and eventually, by its mindless permutations and combinations, it's produced human life and the human mind and the idea of God, because there is no God. The other one is this. In the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. All things came to be through Him. And without Him, nothing came to be that came to be. Do you see the difference between those two worldviews? One is saying that mass energy is primary and mind, logos, information is derivative. The other is saying the exact opposite. Which of them makes more sense? Well, to me as a scientist, there's no contest. In the beginning was the Word. That leads me to make a few closing remarks about the beginning, ladies and gentlemen. Do you know I've said almost nothing about the results of science? I've covered arguments that are accessible to most of you. Let me say something about the results of science, just a teeny little bit. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible has been saying that for centuries, but science has not. I remember in the 1960s when the evidence started coming in, the microwave background, the expansion of the universe and so on, that seemed to imply there was a beginning to space-time. It was resisted fiercely by the scientific establishment, particularly in the United Kingdom and particularly by the editor of Nature, John Maddox, who said we can't go down that route because it gives too much leverage to people that believe the Bible. So here was a scientific advance being resisted because it was too 
close. It converged too well with the Bible. Fascinating, isn't it? But it has settled in. Even at the higher level. And I'm not going to go into multiverses and all the rest of it. If you want to read what I think about all of this, God and Stephen Hawking was written for that reason. But let me go to the heart of it. Believing in a beginning creates an enormous problem for atheists, not for Christians. Because you see, if space-time came to exist, then there was nothing before. Nothing in the philosophical sense of non-being. How do you get a universe out of non-being? Well, of course, the biblical answer is that God is eternal and He created it. But now, forget God for a moment and come to the physicist's dilemma. How do you get a universe from nothing? Well, it is wonderful to listen to this stuff now. Let me give you two examples of it. Here's Stephen Hawking, which is the reason I wrote the book when I discovered here's his main argument. Because there is a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. And I said, just wait a minute, run that past me again. Because there is a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. So a bit more logical analysis. Sorry, but it's fun. Um, because there is a law of gravity, because there is something. The end of the sentence, the universe will create itself from nothing. Contradiction number one. Utter flat contradiction. Problem number two. Because there is a law of gravity, it doesn't say because gravity exists. And that opens a whole amazing can of worms. So the law is enough. But what would a law mean if there's no gravity for it to describe? Well, I don't know. And laws create nothing. I mean, take the first example that Hawking has in his book of a law. The sun rises in the east and sets in the west. That's a law. It's a regularity. But I have noticed, actually, that that law didn't create the sun or move it, or create the East and West. Laws create nothing. That was the problem in the financial crisis, creative accounting. <laughs> People thought that if you did sums long enough, it would create money, but it doesn't. I get that, of course, from C.S. Lewis, who pointed out that you can do arithmetic from now to all eternity, but it won't create anything. And it's rather funny. One of my colleagues, Peter Atkins, is a very outspoken atheist, as you probably know, I did a debate with him. It's on YouTube. It's called Dueling Professors. And uh, it's quite interesting. But anyway, I asked Peter, tell me, Peter, what do you think created the universe? He said, mathematics. And I started to laugh. And he said, what are you laughing about? Well, I said, Peter, that must be the most ridiculous thing I, as a mathematician, have ever heard in my life. He said, why? Well, I said, two plus two equals four. Did that ever put four dollars in your pocket? <laughs> But there are many people that believe that laws create, you see. This is staggering to my mind, staggering as a scientist. So, because there is a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. But half a minute, let's go to the end of the sentence. The universe will create itself. So, if I say to you, X creates Y, what does that mean? It means I assume the existence of X to explain the existence of Y, don't I? So, if I say X creates X, I'm assuming the existence of X to explain the existence of X. And what does that mean? It means that nonsense remains nonsense even if high-powered scientists say it. 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, here's a challenge for you tonight if you can't sleep. There are three distinct levels of self-contradiction in that single sentence. You try and think of another one. And that's the heart of his argument. That's the heart of his argument. Lawrence Krauss, well, Lawrence Krauss, bless him. He comes out with this marvelous statement. Because something is physical, nothing must be physical. They're desperate to get something from nothing, you see. Utterly desperate to get something from nothing. And so they redefine nothing. And there's a great industry in redefining nothing. Um, and I studied it. It's, nothing's very interesting, you know. <laughs> so I had a, a little debate at the Harvard-MIT faculty club last year with the world's leading cosmologist, Alan Guth, who's the author of The Theory of Inflation. So I thought I would um, put the question to him in public, you see. I said, Alan, there's a big problem out there, you know, with nothing. There really is much ado about nothing. And um, <laughs> I, I said, look, you physicists, when you talk about nothing, you don't mean nothing in the ordinary sense. You know, if I go down uh, in the streets of Cambridge or Oxford and I say, I met nobody. It doesn't mean I met somebody who was nobody. It means I didn't meet anybody. Yes? The philosophical definition of nothing is non-being, and everyone understands it. You don't mean that. Publicly said, no, we don't. A quantum vacuum is not nothing. So they haven't got a universe from nothing. And they have to resort, it seems to me, now I don't claim to be a physicist, but I came to be able to think moderately about what people write and expect me to believe. That's exactly what I would expect, ladies and gentlemen. When you reject God ultimately as an explanation ultimately for the universe, your mind gets darkened and you start talking nonsense. The evidence mounts. So far from science burying God, it seems to be that the exact opposite is the case. Now you'll say, I've said nothing about evolution. You're quite right, I haven't. I've written a book on it. So I'm going to do a bit of shameless advertising. <laughs> you can get it in Kindle, Amazon, anything you like. It's far too big a subject to enter into now. I just want to make one point, and that's this. One of the interesting things coming out of cosmology is the fine-tuning of the universe. This universe is incredibly special. The constants of nature that govern the basic fundamental forces and their balances are so fine-tuned as to be unbelievable. Uh, Sir Roger Penrose, who's probably the most distinguished mathematician alive in the world today, and he's not a theist, he's a member of the British Humanist Society, he says, you know, the Creator's aim to get a universe like this in which there's a, a second law of thermodynamics, that is a universe in which even your Cadillac will rust. To get a universe like that, the Creator's aim has to be accurate to one part in 10 to the power, 10 to the power 123, which is a number so big that if you put a one here and a zero in every elementary particle in the universe, you couldn't write it out. No argument about evolution takes anything away from that argument. You see, the confusion arises, ladies and gentlemen. The arguments I've been given to you come from mainstream science. 
But people are far more interested in the controversial arguments like the evolutionary ones that come about at least in part by challenging mainstream science. But what they don't realize when they enter those arguments is that none of them takes a whit away from the arguments from cosmology. Not a whit. As I say to biologists, and I'm not one, I said, you need carbon for all you think happens. And carbon is one of the most powerful evidences of resonance a fine-tuning. You need a fine-tuned universe, whatever else you're going to say about biology. I make no secret of what I say about it, and two of my books are geared to it. God's Undertaker in the first place, and then the one I wrote recently, Seven Days That Divide the World. Now, that's a curious book. It's about Genesis, but the appendices are almost more important than the whole book, because in those I deal as fairly and faithfully as I can with the arguments that people rightly raise about interpreting the text of Genesis and interpreting the data of science. So, ladies and gentlemen, you've been very patient, and I would like to thank you for listening. We'll have a couple of minutes uh, uh, for questions, but thank you very much indeed. Now, I have an idiosyncratic way of doing questions because I believe that everybody's interested in everybody else's questions. So we're going to collect two or three questions and then I'm going to look at them all together. So put your hands up. If you have a question, make it very brief because we've only got seven or eight minutes and I'll collect two or three and then I'll answer them. So hands up, who's a question? There's one back there. Down that line there. Keep your hand up. Or have you retracted the question? Oh, no, you've got it. So number one is, and the next person put their hand up so the microphone can see them. Please, your question. Hey, so um, we've heard a lot about all the evidence that there is for Christianity. Can't hear you. Is this on? Testing. Green. Talk louder. Green. Testing. That's it. Yeah, so we've heard a lot about all the evidence from you and our last speaker and our speakers in general about um, what reasons we have to believe that Christian is true. But I was curious about what you had to say about whether or not the average Christian who doesn't have lots of evidence is justified in their belief. Okay. Next. <laughs> um. So when you asked Dawkins, uh, who created your creator, meaning the universe, uh, you said he didn't have an answer. But what if, you know, sometimes I'll just hear people say, well, science is still working on that, and eventually they'll come up with an answer. Okay, Stan's still working on it. Yes, three. <clears throat> Hello? Uh, what do you say to the consistent atheistic argument uh, or that truth is concomitant to survivability, and so evolution would produce cognitive faculties that are directed toward truth, or that are likely to be directed toward truth? Truth is contrary to survivability, did you say? Concomitant. It is? Concomitant? Oh, concomitant. 
Okay, we'll have one more. Four. There's one over there, right over here with a hat. Yeah, um, how does Satan play a role in this huge thing? Like, is, would Satan be on, like, science's side, per se? So I can't hear you. You'll have to speak more clearly. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. How does Satan play a role in this? In what? This, like, science versus God debate okay. thing. Okay. Okay, well, that'll have to do... Take the last one first. The Bible is very clear that there is an evil superhuman presence. And when it comes to intellectualisms and reasonings and philosophies, it is very interesting that the enemy is described as the God of this world who blinds the minds of those who do not believe. I believe that, of course. It is inspired scripture. And therefore, in all of this, as I thought you might have gathered from my talking about the descent into foolishness, there is a sinister hand that plays a role, of course. And we must realize that this is not simply an intellectual battle. It is a moral and spiritual battle. God is not a theory, ladies and gentlemen. He's a person. And the battle out there is for your loyalty and my loyalty of my heart, my soul, my will to God. That's what's at stake. And that is why the enemy takes an immense interest in worldviews. He's the God of this world. He sets the worldviews. So that's my reaction to that. Remember, Q&As are just that. A little bit of a thought on a question, not a lecture on it. What about truth being concomitant with evolution? Well, my atheist friends say no, and that's the problem. John Gray writes a lot of this. It's very interesting. He says the point is that evolution is geared to success and survivability and not to truth. And that actually is a big sub-issue in this whole debate, that getting truth out of evolution, especially totally unnecessary truths, forgive me if I say so, like you get in abstract pure mathematics, um, raises a very big problem with the adequacy of evolution. Now, John Gray's an atheist, and he's very well worth reading on that particular topic. Now, who created the creator science is still working on it. Well, that's, in a way, delightful. But uh, what are they working on? They're working on trying to get a universe from nothing. That's one of the things they're working on. That is, they're working on getting being from non-being. They're working on getting life from non-life. They're working on getting consciousness from non-consciousness and so on. So give them a lot more time and they'll do it. But half a minute, we're back to the God of the gaps question. How do you know they won't close the gap? Well, one of the reasons is this. It's the nature of the gap. There are some bad gaps, that I call them, that science closes, like thinking that thunder is the voice of the gods. But there are other gaps. You see, we have lived to see, let me just give you a single example, because I've used it already. We have lived to see that the code of life is linguistic. Now, 
You can try, if you wish, and people are trying, of course, to try and get language out of non-language, but they're failing massively. And that's exactly what I would expect to find. You see, ladies and gentlemen, as a scientist, I would prefer a theory that fits the evidence that one that, than one that manifestly doesn't. And a theory that doesn't originate language-like structure in mind appears to me to be utterly doomed uh, to failure in principle. And that is why, of course, the Bible concentrates on the central issue. In the beginning was the Word. Is that the beginning? You see, it's so interesting. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That one sentence polarizes the debate. Because what these people believe is it's the heavens and the earth created everything. Or nothing created the heavens and the earth. The God created in the beginning. That makes all the difference to it. So that demands a lot of discussion. And again, I'd refer you to one of the later chapters of God's Undertaker on that. Now, we've heard lots of reasons to believe. How uh, is the average Christian justified in their belief? Well, there's no average Christian for a start. Have you ever met an average Christian? Now, what does the question mean? Does the question mean average in the sense of not highly educated? Well, then I can understand it. Well, look at how Christianity exploded in the world with people that hadn't been to college, hadn't been to the universities and so on, apart from Paul maybe and Luke. The others may have had some little form of training like John. But the point is, ladies and gentlemen, you don't have to be a brilliant genius to experience the reality of God. Nobody, none of you know what electricity is, yet you all use it. You're sitting there with all these machines dying to switch them on again. <laughs> you don't know what it is, but you can use it. So you don't have to be able to understand a lot of the stuff I'm talking about in order to experience the reality of God. Because you see, if it's true, and you commit yourself to Christ, however simply, it'll be real in your experience because it's true. Now I'm in the business of talking to people who are highly intelligent and who ask me for reasons. I'm also in the business of encouraging Christians who can't do it for themselves. That there are reasons out there to believe. And many of us have to do what the scientists do, accept things on authority. They do it all the time. They haven't done all the experiments that are in the scientific textbooks in front of them. They believe what other people have done. Now, of course, you have to be a little bit wary of that. But it's very important to realize, ladies and gentlemen, that the central apologetic... Oh, I'm talking about that tonight, aren't I? So I leave it for tonight. Thank you very much. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.